Now, it's time to join... She's bouncing around excitedly. Um, it's time, finally, to join the company of wolves. Um, our final guest rehabilitated the F word and how to be a woman and gave us a feminist hero and how to build a girl. And when I joined the Times, she was the only other person who'd been inside a council house other, to than, other than to report on a fire. Um, <laughs> or Artex. And at one point, she was a col reigning columnist, interviewer, um, and critic of the year. She's here tonight to tell us a bit about the charity single that she's helping make happen right now, which will launch later in the week. Um, and she's going to launch her world-changing, life-altering Moranifesto. Please welcome my favourite cisgendered feminist, <laughs> Callum Moran! <laughs> Keep clapping, this might take a while. I want to I want to try and make this so I can stand up, because when I sit down in these trousers, they give me massive camel toe. That's a big literary concern. Never show how well hung you are down below, if you can possibly do it. That's good. Just stand there, is that good? There, look, that's it, I've done it. I am technical. Um, uh, so I'm here by a massive error, really. Um, I'd always wanted to go to the literary salon, and for some reason I was too embarrassed to ask Damien if he put me on the guest list, and so I just thought that I should volunteer to come and do a thing. <laughs> it didn't occur to me I could just simply sit in the audience and get pissed and watch other people come up here and do the nervous, sweaty thing. Um, so as a consequence, uh, I only finished what I am about to read to you yesterday. Uh, this, this book isn't out until next week. Uh, no, 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 until next year, March next year. Um, <laughs> And that's why I'm reading from scrotty bits of paper instead of a lovely published book like Jojo and John. By the way, so much love for Jojo and John. Fucking hell. All God. the love for Jojo and John. Yeah. All the love. Oh my God. Huge yeah. love. Just amazing. I think I'm about to have a massive crush on John La, so watch this space. So. So, the idea of the next book, Moranifesto, it's the next um, anthology of my writings for the Times. And I realised as I was compiling it that over the last three years I've become much more political. When I first started writing for the Times, I was just uh, a teenage girl who was just trying to be a lols minstrel. Uh, that was all I was there for, was just simply some kind of ruffle jester. And, uh, and I thought you weren't allowed to write about politics or society, anything serious. And as the years have gone by, and particularly since the success of How to Be a Woman, I've written more about politics, more about society, more about serious things. And as I was putting this, uh, this book together, I started thinking, hang on, it's not enough to be commenting on these things, really. You know, I mean, at the point where you've been complaining about something for three minutes, you should have started to come up with a solution about two minutes ago. And, and so as I sat there chain-smoking and writing, I realised that what I wanted to do was write my own Moranifesto. I have essentially uh, written a 25,000-word book at the front of this thing uh, explaining how I would rule the world. Um, uh, it's the favourite game of the working classes when we're in the pub. This is how I'd rule the world if the fuckers weren't grinding me down! Um, so, the, the book starts with the cheerful phrase, Hey guys, let's have a conversation about the innate purpose of society. <laughs> and then I quote Milton Friedman, which I wasn't expecting to do. No, I wasn't expecting that either. No, Can I know. I just say, major thatchgasm I know. happened straight after that. But I come straight from the left and the right. This is my new thing. So the quote from Milton Friedman I found particularly apposite was this, Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around at the time. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. And so now follow my ideas. <laughs> 
I wanted to start this book by saying, we know a change is going to come soon. We can feel it. Of course, a change must come. All the signs are there right now. We have wealth inequality that has returned to Victorian times. The after effects of the 2008 crash are still rippling. The world economy is precarious, overheated in some places, rickety and in danger of collapsing in others. We have 50 million refugees across the world, the most amount of people in transit since the end of the Second World War. Depending on where you stand on climate change, with, on the one side, the 90% of scientists who say that it's a certainty, or, on the other side, Donald Trump taking advice from his wig, <laughs> like the deludo chef with the rat under his hat in Ratatouille, <laughs> you can't argue with the fact that we're palpably running out of lions, fish, glaciers and sparrows. I'd like to think they've all just popped down the shops to get the papers and some fags, but I suspect they're kind of extincting. With industry and terminal decline in Britain, replaced by financial services and banking, the best contribution the average low-wage citizen can make to the economy is to get in debt. Hence the lack of willingness to deflate house prices and the subsequent huge mortgage payments, or indeed the shift of fees for higher education, thus tying young people into long-term loans. The average non-mortgage debt of a British citizen is £10,000 plus interest. And this huge national debt is a key part of our current economic model because we are an economy largely based now on people buying money for more than it's worth. That is what debt is. And that is seen as normal. But it is, of course, incredibly risky behaviour because if interest rates go up, so will the amount of people in total financial ruin. And that seems kind of like a bad plan. <laughs> And then, of course, there's inequality. There's still outrageous underrepresentation of the working classes, women, people of colour, and the LGBT community in any seat of power business, government, finance, or media. The underrepresentation of the majority of people, if you lump all of us minorities in together. I was planning a PowerPoint presentation about this with slides that would end with me going, So you see, it's still fucking terrible! <laughs> and then setting fire to the stage. <laughs> And then I was potentially going to sum up by saying, a change is going to come soon. A new thing must arrive. I have seen it. I was planning to say all this while standing in a spotlight, whilst wearing a cape, just to make it more dramatic. <laughs> Maybe I'd even say these things in one of those robot voice things to make it full of drama. A change is coming. Can you feel it? Actually, that sounds more Jamaican than robot but I'll work on that. And of course, when I talk about a change coming, I would be totally right. Because change is always just about to arrive. One of the delightful delusions we have as a species is that changes occur only very rarely, and that when they do, they are seismic and sudden. In between these seismic changes, everything is still and peaceful. Old maids cycle to church, and we hear the thwack of the cricket bat, etc., etc. In actuality, change is constant. We are a species that is always on the move. All our civilizations were built on the run. There is no walking pace, there is no rest. Change was happening yesterday and last year and now and tomorrow. You are infinitesimally now changing things by tweeting or drinking fair trade tea or booking a flight or talking to your child about equal marriage or more likely listening to your child tell you about equal marriage <laughs> because your children are often far ahead of you. 
They cannot remember the past and they see more of the future because they will be in it for longer than you. That's why they're posting pieces about teenage coders in Ghana on their Facebook pages or telling you what vontouring is. Don't look it up, it's plastic surgery for your vagina. You don't want to know. Just imagine your flaps looking like the Bride of Wilderstein and leave it there. <laughs> so, a change is coming. <laughs> Have you seen such a thing, Damien? <laughs> Would <What>? you like to? <laughs> I did Google it when I was eating it. <laughs> Big mistake. It's unhappy. So, a change is coming and there's no change there. As far as humanity is concerned, change is business as usual. I have heard in the last four years the word revolution mentioned more times than I did in the preceding 20. In protest groups and meetings and overwhelmingly online, I have heard people talking about revolution as if it is a coming thing and a necessary thing. Occupy, Syriza, Podemos, the Arab Spring, the near breakup of the Union during the Scottish referendum, Jeremy Corbyn's vest. We slip into talk of revolution easily these days. That's where the heat is. When Russell Brand wrote a book called Revolution, it sold over half a million copies, and his interview on Newsnight was watched by 11 million people, twice the amount who regularly watch EastEnders. And that was for a man discussing the overthrow of the entire political system, dismantling the multinationals and setting up anarchist collectives. Not even the drunkest Marxist gambling addict would have put money on that in the year 2000. <laughs> Personally, I'm thrilled with the current modishness of the word revolution because I like the word revolution. It is my third favorite word after the words marzipan and Bowie. <laughs> But I should make it clear, I like the word revolution as defined in the second entry in the dictionary and not the first. The dictionary's first definition of revolution is thus, rebellion, revolt, insurrection, mutiny, riot, insurgency, overthrow, regime charge, change, anarchy and disorder. Now, personally, I'm not up for that. The kind of people who are up for mutinies and riots tend to be young men, the kind for whom an afternoon of being kettled by 600 metropolitan policemen before breaking free and wanging a brick through the window of Greg's mm -hmm. feels like a life-affirming alternative to sports. <laughs> by way of contrast, I'm a 40-year-old woman with very inferior running abilities and two children. I don't like riots. I don't like anarchy. I've read enough history books to be resoundingly unkeen on extreme politics of either the left or the right. Breakdowns in society, anarchy, overthrow, seizures of power and disorder. Because they tend to work out very badly for women and children. They tend to work out very badly for everyone. My general rule of thumb is that you're always a little bit closer to the conditions that led to the outbreak of World War II than you think you are which is why I'm all for political and emotional stability, no, and emotional, political and economic stability. <laughs> but let's, let's keep all of it on an even keel. Non-tumultuous cultural chains, the bins being continued to be emptied on time, etc., etc. I like order, I like calm. I like not Googling how to get stroke hide a gun case in the case of a breakdown of society. That's why the revolution I like is the second dictionary definition. Revolution, sea change, metamorphosis, transformation, innovation, regrouping, reorientation. Now that is a revolution I can get behind, 
metamorphosis, sea change, a revolution that sounds like the moment in The Wizard of Oz when it goes from black and white into colour, or where Cinderella's ball gown appears around her in a blaze of fairy godmother magic. Not upheaval, but an upgrade. Many of the things that I discuss in the book under the heading of politics are in fact cultural, social and technological. Society and culture marches faster and longer and harder than politics. They affect change the fastest and in the coolest way possible. One of the stories that I tell in my stand-up shows is that of Doctor Who. Russell T. Davis, the writer of Doctor Who, convinces the BBC to revive the show because he loves it. And into the first series, he writes a character, Captain Jack Harkness, who is a hot, charismatic, pansexual superhero. Essentially, Han Solo, he'll do it with anyone. <laughs> in one episode, he kisses the Doctor full on the lips. Now, this is on a primetime BBC show, screened at tea time and watched by families. Not only was there not one letter of complaint in the next week, but on Monday morning, in my children's playground at school, there were 10-year-old boys fighting to play the role of Captain Jack in their Doctor Who games. Now, that is something that, with the best will in the world, no piece of legislation or equalities minister could ever have achieved, making 10-year-old boys think that bisexual superheroes are cool. <laughs> They couldn't do that overnight. They couldn't do that without arguments. They couldn't do it fueled entirely just by love and fueled by joy and almost as a byproduct of a show that makes you that wants you to entertain and dazzle to make you laugh and gasp and cry. I can draw a fairly straight line between that kiss on Doctor Who and the passing of the Equal Marriage Act in the UK. For what elected representative can vote against human rights for a section of the population that their children and their grandchildren totally accept? Yes, laws need to be made, and politics need to ex exist to ratify them and give them official status. But so much of the groundwork is done simply through human creativity, joy, and a willingness to consider future and parallel worlds. That's what culture is. That's what culture does. The BBC made that show, and we watched it, and in a small way, when we were at play, while we were happy, the world was changed. For the first time ever, thank you, one clap, I'll take it. <laughs> For the first time ever, thanks to the explosion of social media, the world can talk to the world, unmediated. Information known by one person can be shared around the world in less than an hour. Voices that would previously never have been heard can lead the debate from a bedroom, from a single laptop, an instance being in the UK with the Daughters of Heath anti-FGM campaign that led to changes in legislation within a year. The conversations, ideas, campaigns and latterly organisations that are forming online are bigger than politics could ever be because they involve billions, not thousands, and they travel fast and they grow at light speed and they are fueled not by jobs, not by political conviction, not by a nine-to-five job, but by love by our need to create a better and future world, because, to paraphrase Philip Larkin, the future is the only place that we have to live. Through the internet of the world, we have finally gathered and gained a global sentience that was unthinkable even in the era of the satellite phone link-up or the facts. Someone observing the Earth from space would have noticed that, since social media opened up the skies in the last 10 years, conversations and introductions and informations and networks have lit up the globe with a trillion golden skeins. 
The whole world is firing up like a teenage brain. We are burning neural pathways across the globe. We are making connections. We are expanding. We are leaping. Previous spiritual or religious notions of a collective human consciousness now look like simple predictions of the future. We are now in a collective consciousness. And that is the ultimate purpose of the internet. Oh my God, I'm going to go and have a cigarette. <laughs> So, I mean, that's a very, very short extract from, from the whole thing, wherein I literally put out my political manifesto. I talk about architecture, I talk about equality, I talk about culture, I talk about how we need to revive Victorian drinking fountains in order to not waste the 50 million plastic bottles that we use every year just simply to have a drink when we had a system in Victorian times that allowed us to do it for free in the street. Uh, it's uh, this, thank you. Are they still in Russia? Go back there, you communist. Thank you, Sophie Hayward. Um, uh, so, so there's a million things, but, but all of it is sort of the big introduction is kind of, you know, laying out my manifesto for the world and trying to make us realise whose side we're on, ours, what is our purpose, creating the future, who should be involved in that, everyone. And once we have uh, gathered together and we can communicate with each other in a way that we never could before, who are the enemies that we want to identify and what are the problems that we want to solve immediately? And the first one that I identify in this book is printers. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever <laughs> I left it, though, fuck, fuck, fuck. All oh, these no, printed pages. I know, I know. <laughs> I'll tell you which printer I finally found in the end that worked. It's the first one ever. So, printers. Look, I'm only going to talk about this subject if we all promise not to get angry about it. I know most conversations about abortion or Israel or freedom of speech or Europe or the prospect of a female doctor in Doctor Who should all start like this. But to be fair, those are all subjects we could agree on if everyone went down the pub with the conversation chaired by a couple of mums who made it very clear that everyone had to be on their best behaviour, no shouting, and it had to be finished by five o'clock so they could go back and pop a whites wash on. <laughs> this subject, however, has no such possibility of resolve because it is printers. Printers, the motherfucking hate units that inspire more loathing than any other invention on Earth. <laughs> Their evil unreliability is the high watermark by which every other device, past and future, must be measured. To purchase one is an act comparable to purchasing a succubus, demon, or tiny Nazi for 200 pounds plus VAT. <laughs> the printer's grasp of evil is perfect for they prey on your weakest moment when you need them most. <laughs> There's a taxi idling outside. All you need to do is print out your train tickets slash boarding pass slash homework slash speech notes. You bought the printer but four months ago and you've only used it six times. So pressing print will mean a joyous printing sound followed by you running out of the house. Hang on, what, what? <laughs> Replace cyan cartridge? Invalid driver? Print is not aligned? Paper jam? What are you saying to me? What does this mean? Print is not aligned? That's just a situationist slogan about post-internet media. Daubed on a wall. 
it's not telling me what button to press. How am I supposed to align print? Do you want me to do a seminar on 360 joined up media? Because so help me God, I will. <laughs> Except I can't because I would need to print out all my notes first. Invalid driver? To me, that means too drunk to get home. Order a taxi now. <laughs> this is not telling me which part of the printer to punch. Paper jam. Okay, I know that one. That is the state wherein a single, non-complex sheet of A4 paper has, by some inexplicable process, been, ron been rendered into a solid origami... S oh. <laughs> a lot of wine. <laughs> it's the state wherein a single, non-complex sheet of A4 paper has, by some inexplicable process, been rendered into a solid origami swan of bullshit by your printer. Said swan is now lodged in a part of your printer wholly inaccessible by any of the useless trapdoors. <laughs> which means you have to grab the swan's tail and yank it from the machine. Even as the manual insists this will totally invalidate your warranty. But that doesn't matter because you're about to throw the fucking printer out of the window anyway. <laughs> the thing is, the more you learn about printers, the more you hate them. You know that infuriating little <laughs> that printers make for three minutes on startup that sounds like a pompous man at the dinner table about to say, I'm not racist, but... <laughs> I've researched this. That's the printer lavishly squirting ink out to clear the nozzles. Ink which PC World recently calculated costs £2,291 per gallon. That is more expensive than blood or liquid ecstasy. <laughs> this means that it's perfectly possible to run a cartridge dry simply from turning a printer on and off again without ever printing a single document. Yes, things suddenly make a lot more sense now, don't they? But don't think that getting a laser printer would be fine, because according to an Australian study, the ultra-fine particles they admit cause a health risk equal to passive smoking. Whether from stress or lung cancer, your printer will kill you. <laughs> In, no, 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 no. No, the hate hasn't finished yet. In Game of Thrones, the unfortunate nut Arya has witnessed most of those that she loves being slaughtered horrifically. Consequently, she now recites a list of those she must now kill like a prayer. Cersei, Joffrey, Walder Frey, the Mountain, Merin Trant. I have an almost identical prayer, except mine goes Hewlett-Packard, Cannon, Epson, <laughs> Fujitsu. One of each of the 11 printers whose last act was to insist Wi-Fi not detected. <laughs> Even as I bodily rub the fucking printer against the router screaming, look, there it is, connect. <laughs> or indeed insisted that they needed a full cyan cartridge, even though I was printing in black and white. <laughs> which is essentially acting like some rock star insisting they wanted the blue M&Ms removed from their rider. I threw them all out of the window. All. How can printers have become so spoilt and demanding? Because they are the ultimate basic bitch item. I have devices in my pocket that will allow me to video conference someone on a beach in Tasmania. And yet my pampered, toad-like printer used just six times a year, cannot manage to do something that peasants were handling in the 16th century 
by using carved pieces of wood. <laughs> Come on! I beg any half-competent organisation to start making printers now. John Lewis, Waitrose, even ISIS are to push. <laughs> the world cannot tolerate this much longer. Our spiritual cyan is running dry. We have a paper jam in our souls. Print is not in alignment. <laughs> Print rage sweat through. Oh, smells of onion soup as well. Why is that? What is it about human biology that makes sweat smell like onion soup? It's anger. Is that what it is? That's what it is. Oh, onions are angry. You say in the book that we are due, you said at the beginning, we're due an upgrade. Yes. What is the upgrade, basically speaking? It's not to our software. Our no, the, up, the upgrade is us. Um, basically, I live online. Um, I've seen some terrible things happen online. Uh, I've seen some amazing things online. Maybe mainly cats with eyebrows. Um, <laughs> but what you notice is that the incredible potential for us to be able to steer our future by the fact that you know the greatest resource that we have in the world isn't oil or uranium or gold. It is human brains, and this is the main argument in favour of equality. Because at the moment, you know, our ruling classes tend to be made from a very small section of the population. And if you look at a map of the world and the countries that are marked in red, that terrible shaming rash of countries with the highest infant mortality rates, uh, with the earliest death rates, uh, you know, the lowest education rates, and the worst economies and the most outbreaks of war, they tend to be the most unequal countries. They are countries where your disabled people are left upstairs in a bed and your gay people are thrown from roofs and women aren't allowed to be educated or to write, drive a car. And the reason that those countries are so fucked is because those countries are the most unequal countries and that means they are the most stupid countries. You know, the greatest resource they have, all these billions of brains that they have in their country are not being pulled upon to come up with solutions. And what, thank you. I'll take my, my, my one hand clap, this is good. Um, and previously, you know, all the way through history, we, we just, you know, any kind of development that we've had has purely been unluck. If someone came up with a really great idea for medicine or for, for culture or for politics, only generally if they were born into someone able-bodied, in the right class, who had access to the right education and who wasn't felled by cholera at the age of three anyway, uh, would their ideas get out into the world and become useful to us and change our lives. But now, with the internet, anyone who has an idea can share it with everyone else instantly and immediately. This uh is... But bad ideas are shared just as much as good ideas, aren't they? Well, yeah. Well, there's there's a huge chapter, like kind of like a, a third of the of the manifesto is talking about how important tone online is, because this is where most of the conversation about political change is happening. This is where we see all those ideas shared. This is where we feel contact with the world, and you know, there's many amazing things to the internet. There's also awful things. The internet is tend to, in the book, I, I liken it to a child. Basically, the internet is very young. Something particularly like Twitter, it's only just been born. It's basically like a baby, and once you understand it like that, it makes a lot more sense because you see it prone to sudden tantrums and fits. Uh, it will get suddenly very upset. Uh, you know, it can be very, it can be immediately pacified by showing it a picture of a cat or something sparkly. Um, this is a technology that will grow. We you know we'll go through our teenage years on the internet and then our older, mature, more mature years on the internet. But it's very important for people now who are on the internet to insist on a tone. There's a quote that I quote from a band called The Divine Comedy, which is a beautiful lyric, which goes, fate doesn't hang on a wrong or right choice. Fate just depends on the tone of your voice. 
And so often on the internet, that is what makes a difference. I've seen people saying brilliant, right, true, factual things, but because they are communicating in anger, all that people are hearing is the anger, and they are responding with anger. And I've seen this in the last couple of years with campaigns for feminism, or people of color, or in LGBT rights, or you know, particularly in trans issues. People who should all be on the same side, people who all I mean, hurt people who should all be on the same side, go on and say something angry, someone else responds in an angry way, and suddenly we've wasted an incredible conversation that we could have had. So I've tried to establish the rules of the internet. That's one of the, one of the three possibly, possibly useless tasks that I sent myself. It's just, because what you need is a mum or dad of the internet. You know, kind of so often when you're there, just kind of, you know, when you're th there's that cartoon that's just got someone up late at night, and their partner comes in and goes, why aren't you coming to bed? And he's going, someone's wrong on the internet. And, and so much of the time that we've wasted has just been with the, you know, you want there to be a mum or a dad that will sort things out. And for a while it looked like, for a while it looked like it might be Stephen Fry, but he's kind of like taking a back seat now. But you want to refer things to a mum or dad on the internet to go, this isn't right. This, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. And we need to ratify some rules. So I, I have imposed my own rules. Uh, <laughs> how did it feel for you when you were one of the people who was told their tone was wrong on the internet, when you were branded? A racist. Oh, it wasn't uh, just racist. I was racist, racist, ableist, transphobic, and and homophobic. Yes, uh, that was. All I do one. often think. Oh, of you and as a I bigger. also hated fans of Sherlock. Um, that was the biggest crime. It was, it was a huge old week. Yeah, I I I I, I shat on fanfic. I was I, told I many many times. The, yeah. the best quote I find about it was the amount of privilege that British writer turned feminist icon Catelyn Moran owns is special and unique, like a snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> That's your privilege. How did that feel, though, when you were in that moment? Did that influence the way that you, the, 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 the rules that you crafted? Well, the thing is, in a way, it was incredibly useful, kind of, you know, I was, I was accused of all of these things. And, uh, you know, for me, those are the worst things that you can be accused of, because, I mean, everything that I write is about equality. I'm a hippie. Everything I write is about equality. It's all about the future and inclusion. You know, I, I come from a weird and strange background, and, and that's what my whole thing is. Uh, so that was awful. Um, and it made me suicidal for a while uh, and very very anxious and unhappy but did it, it, did it really yeah no there was a week it was it was during this there was this awful bbc one uh, saturday night show that was called i think it was called the best of great britain where at one point johnny vegas and nick knowles from SO, diy sos uh, were asked to take a pasty and go over to a huge map of england and put it where they thought peterborough was and I was having to review that show that week, and at that point, I want I don't want to live anymore. It was it was just everything had been so awful up until that point. And I was like, no, this is it. We're, we're all fucked. Uh, it was it was a very seminal pasty for me. Um, but but it did make me go out and learn a whole load more. I went out and educated myself. I read a whole load of stuff. And for me, do you think any of those claims were in any way true? Did any of them touch a nerve for you? No, I mean, it was, the whole thing was on, the, the, the story, it feels like boring talking about, no, not boring, but, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to waste everybody's time, but basically, the whole accusation of being a racist was I went and interviewed Lena Dunham. I think Girls is an incredible show. Uh, you know, I thought what she did was, you know, incredible. It was very inspiring. And to me, it seemed very clear that it was a show about spoiled white girls in New York. And I tweeted about how I'd interviewed her, and I suddenly got, and I'd never had any aggro on the, on the internet before, and uh, suddenly all these people started going, well, I hope you asked her why she's such a racist piece of shit. Uh, you know, I hope you've questioned her about this. And as a kind of, you know, someone who's been in the job for, you know, hundreds of years, was just kind of like, no, like, you know, don't tell me how to do my job. Mm. And they were going, I hope you've talked to her about why she's really racist. But no, because I don't give a shit. In the same way that when people, when I go and interview Lily Allen, you're told to go and ask her about a miscarriage, I won't do that. Mm. When I go and interview Lady Gaga and they want me to go and, you know, ask, you know, ask her, are you a man? I won't do that. That's not how I do interviews. Um, <laughs> although I found out she wasn't a man because we ended up going to the toilet together. So that was... <laughs> 
I got to check that stuff out, and that was definitely lady gear. Um, uh, but you know, but it was. But that's where I learnt my whole don't tweet in anger because I'm generally just very lolzy and relaxed on the internet. And just in that one moment, I'd had a very bad week, and I was just like, no, I said, don't give a shit. Don't tell me how to do my job. That was conflated to be. I don't give a shit about um, a representation of people in colour in media. And it's like, well, let me make my position on there very clear. To me, it's very obvious that Girls is about spoiled, white, middle-class girls in New York. That's where all the fun and all the lols is in that show. I hate more than anything else, well, not every, everything else, uh, but, but the, you know, bad hair is definitely top of the list, but probably third in the list is when white writers try to write a token person of colour into a show in order to hit a, in order to hit a criterion. Um, in the same way, that I hate it when a male writer tries to write a female character, a token one who just goes around being angry, going, boys, what are you doing in here? I've come to spoil all the fun by being angry. You know, I hate tokenism. Do I think that the media and the entertainment industry is massively racist? Yes. Do I think a better campaign would be finding out, for instance, who runs every single broadcasting agency in America and running a tweet campaign going, you need to have a quota of people that you employ, of uh, writers of colours, uh, uh, people of colour who are writers and actors and directors coming up with their own material and their own shows that they're in control of? Yes. Will I talk about that forever? Yes. If a show like that came along, would I write about it and talk about it? Yes. But do I think that funneling all of America's massive racial problems down into Lena Dunham, who's done so many brave and astonishing things? No, no, I'm not going to pile on her. I'm not going to have a go at her. I'm not going to talk to her about that. So, yes. <gasps> that was a bad Deep breath. <laughs> um, the, the, the manifesto is long and it is very personal. Um, and one of the one of the parts that I thought really spoke spoke most to me about you was to do with wants and needs. And you yes. talk about in our culture how we oscillate between electing governments of want and governments of need. Yes. Governments of the right, governments of the left. What is a want? What is a need? And it made me think about you. And I was thinking about you when you were in that house in Wolverhampton. And what did you want and need then? Have you got it? And what do you want and need now? What I wanted then was to have sex with Chevy Chase. <laughs> Um, Did that happen in your head? Looking back, probably what I needed then at that point was to have sex with Chevy Chase as well. It would certainly have, would certainly have taken the edge off. Um, uh, well, no, wants and needs is a thing in, scre in, 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 in screenwriting where um, uh, what you think you want at the beginning of... You know, for instance, uh, at the beginning of Gone with the Wind, what Scarlett wants is to get with the pampered, anemic fop Ashley Wilkes. But what she actually needs is to become a strong, independent woman and take over Tara. And, uh, you know, in Star Wars, what Han Solo wants at the beginning is some money. You know, he wants to, he's going to run that mission for money. But by the end of it, what he needs to be is part of a bigger campaign in order to, to you know, to overthrow Darth Vader. Um, and so, and you can see this applied to your lives and particularly to politics. Like, for instance, you know, in society, what we want and what we need are very confused. What we want is... We're happy to pay three pounds for a latte. What we want is Wi-Fi. We're happy to pay however much that is every month. What we want is a new iPhone. We're happy to pay 240 quid for that and whatever the monthly fee is. What we actually need is an NHS. What we actually need is a public transport system that works, is an affordable. What we actually need is care for our elderly. What we actually need is mental health care. But these two things, it's much harder to campaign on a on a need than a want. Uh, you know, these are the immediate things. And particularly when you're young, you're very focused on your wants. You don't actually what you realise what your needs are till later. And generally, you could divide sort of right-wing and left-wing policies between wants and needs. Right-wing policies are geared towards going, these are your wants. This is what you want. You want to be rich. 
you know, you want to make money, you want to have a successful business, but a successful business. Left-wing stuff is like, what do we need? And the problem with left-wing policies is that the point where you start realizing what you need and you would be ready to campaign for them, you're older and you tend to be being swamped by the needs that you have. You know, at the point where you've got, thank you, but the point where you've got, you know, for instance, a psychotic loved one who's on the roof of a building and threatening to jump, uh, you realize what you need at that point is a mental, uh, a mental health service in this country that puts 50% of its funding into mental health care and 50% into physical health care, unlike the 10% that we have currently at the moment. But you're not in a position to campaign for that because you're trying to get someone off a roof. And this is one of the big differences, you know, in, in left-wing and right-wing policies. And, and what we see over the last, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years in this country is we tend to oscillate between governments that give us what we want and governments that give us what we need. You know, one will come along and patch it all up and then another one will go, no, but you want these things. And then we get to a point where all the things that we need have been denuded and then we swing back and go, okay, we better rebuild those hospitals. They're actually quite useful. And what I'm trying to talk about in the book is we need to stop this swing between left-wing and right-wing policies. And I, what, what I talk about in the book is how we need to invent a new kind of politics where we, it, which is evidence-based. We need to invent something that's basically like God, a Wikipedia, of all the knowledge like that the Icelandic the government the open source government yes idea. Open, open source government where the first thing we do rather than acting from political beliefs we tend to inherit our votes from our parents uh, you know or from the, the area that we grow up in Instead of doing that, we invent new parties which would start with the basis of, first of all, spending five years aggregating all the knowledge we've got. What are the best educational systems? What are the best economic models? During the 2008 crash, I was constantly terrified by turning on Newsnight and they would have economic experts on there and people would go, well, what should we do now? Is it going to be Keynesian economics or austerity? And they'd be going, we don't know which one works best. And you'd be going, we've had 100 years of both systems now. Surely we know which one's best. On average, these things are complex, but we must be starting to aggregate this information now in the same way we do technology where we know which systems work best, where we know which, which machines work best, I mean, in medicine where we know which drugs work best. Why are we not aggregating political information in one place? We put this huge store here, which is from the bottom up, where people who work in education and in health are showing you their ideas and telling you what will work on the ground, and we have all that in a massive database, and then we form a political party based around that, based around evidence and what we need now, rather than the parties we have at the moment, which were both you know, formed at least a century ago, and have no way of being able to encompass the massive shift in women going to work, our needs for childcare, the, the population time bomb that we have now, any gestures towards equality, you know, the massive leaps in technology, people working from home, the gigantic climate change thing that is coming towards us and going to fuck us all. Start from there, invent a new thing. That's why I find UKIP incredibly inspiring. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> you, you spend a lot of time talking about Nigel and, and how, yes. how you're like, he's, he's doing it, he's getting it right. He's getting yeah. it right. Well, how is he getting it well, right? Well, basically, if you've got a massive buffoon fuckwit who has who has got to the point with kind of like with no real proper strategies at all with things that everybody would laugh at the park if you spent 20 minutes trying to work out if this would work or not who's got to 30 percent of the vote and captured the political imagination in a way that no other party did in the last election in the last two elections then the idea of there being a good ukip that could come along who weren't massive asshats but were doing this stuff for good instead of evil uh it's incredibly inspiring it doesn't take that much to start something new that's what we've always done through history and that is what I am trying to encourage now. We are the Colonel of the Good UKIP. I'm going to take a couple of questions for Catelyn. Lady here and man there. Yes. I want to say that I will prioritise the question, would you like some more wine? Anybody asking me that yes. will be given priority. Yes, Sophie yes. Haywood, please be deployed. Excellent. <laughs> Activate Lady. Haywood. Yes, Thank what's your you, question? Darling. Yeah. 
This is a good question, one I was going to ask you. What do you think of the Women's Equality Party? I am a fund founder member. Uh, I think it's amazing what they're doing. And I love the fact that they're open sourcing it from the start. They're just going out and going, who wants to join this party? Let's you come and tell us what is important to you. Uh, you know, I, th I, th I very much feel that that is the future of politics. And I suspect there will be, there was a brilliant piece in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago about the idea of there being a platform party, which would be a coalition of left-wing parties, which would be Women's Equality Party. Yeah, the Greens, the, the Labour, and that would be the way that you would... Yeah, and you would have, because until we get rid of uh, First Past the Post and until we have some kind of form of proportional reputation or AV, then new parties are fucked. There's no way new parties are going to get into power. And that's, you know, if you want to look at why voter apathy is rampant in this country, it's that, it's that horrible thing where you're sitting in the voting booth going, okay, wh where do I put my vote? Like kind of, you know, where's it going to be effective? You can't vote for the party that you believe in. You're just trying to be strategic without any information at all in a booth. That's insane. I, I vote for Caroline Lucas and I'd like her to be the next leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> um, gentleman over there. The, the question is what pre order my book. <laughs> now that's a balance of wants and needs. <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah, that's that's no, a balance no, of wants and needs. <laughs> Very quickly tell us about the charity single. Oh God, okay. Well, I can't, I can't reveal the full things yet, but basically last Thursday, me and Pete, as my husband Pete, uh, as everybody has in this room, I'm sure, was just watching the news in floods of tears, as we have been for the last couple of months, and we were like, let's do a thing. And the thing we decided we'd do, would we release a single in a week. And so it's going to be out this Friday. Uh, I, I can't say any more about it than that, but we're launching it uh, on a... Uh, I, can't, I can't say even that. I don't think that's not confirmed at the moment. But, but basically, if you're on social media on Friday, you will suddenly be aware of a big thing, I hope. Um, and it, it's for Save the Children. And, uh, and I haven't slept for four days, which is why I'm drinking wine simply for energy. This isn't a problem. This is simply... I'm like a honeybee just simply drinking my nectar in order to keep awake. But, uh, but it's, it's been informative. We're like a little... Paula Yates and Bob Geldof at the moment. It's, it's, been, it's been... In a happy time. Yes. Uh, Dan, can I just very quickly... I know you can hear me. Can I, are you ready to turn around what you've created on the canvas yet? I've, turn I've met as men. Turn around. around. Not that there's any pressure at all on you at this point whatsoever at all. I know that it's not finished. I know that you're going to take it away tonight. But everybody would love to see what your sense of this evening has been from a blank canvas to this oh wow. my god thank you so much that is incredible oh my god the light is amazing the light is amazing i was really hoping it would be edvard monks the scream but <laughs> um limited edition copies of the uh, prints of the picture will be available afterwards um, when Dan has finished doing his incredible work. But Dan, I want to thank you. I want to thank Jojo Moyes, John Law, Catelyn Moran and Kate Henry.